There's an old British comedy skit um, from years ago, Monty Python, I think, but don't quote me on that. But uh, two friends, two guys, uh, go into a restaurant, meet for dinner, and these two friends order the identical meal, a filet of some kind of fish, and when the waiter brings their meals and sets them down on this tray and walks away, there are, there are two identical plates. Identical except one of the plates has a much larger piece of fish than the other plate. And so one of the friends reaches over, grabs the, the plate with the little small filet, and sets it in front of his friend. And he takes the great big one, and he sets it in front of him. And his friend says, well, you got a lot of nerve. And the guy says, well, I'm sorry, what would you have done? And he said, well, if I was serving you, I would give you the big piece. He said, well, I've got it, haven't I? I'm just helping you serve me. And that's not very mature, is it? When do we get to the part in our lives where, where we mature in that way, where we really do want to do things for other people simply for doing them for other people? Maturing spiritually is a big part of this letter that we started last week, the, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, a bunch of Christians in a town in Greece called Philippi. We know it as Philippians. Spiritual maturity is, is a major theme in this letter. In some ways, it's what the letter is all about. But if you were here last week, you might be saying, that's not what you told us last week, Pastor Matt, because last week you told us this letter was all about Biblical thinking, gospel thinking, leads to joy. I haven't changed my mind in a week. Because those are, if they're not exactly the same thing, they're so related, it becomes hard to tell them apart. One result of having what Paul will say, the mind of Christ, thinking like Jesus. We said last week, and we'll say more, when I think like Jesus, when I see the world like Jesus, I will have joy. Always. Because as I grow in Christ and get closer to Him, I see I always have the opportunity to do what my heart has grown to desire, which is glorify Him. Through tears, through pain, through loss, through trial, through happiness. I can make much of Christ, which brings me joy. One other thing that will happen as I get closer to the Lord, I will start to get joy out of what out of being obedient to him, out of what he tells me to do. So I can start to give my friends the bigger piece of fish. Not because I want them to think I'm a good dude. Not because if I give them the big one this time, maybe I'll get the big one next time. See, that's really not spiritually mature motivation. 
It's actually selfish. I'm giving to get. I'm going to give you what you want this time, hoping other everybody catching this? Hoping it will change the way people see me. It will, maybe I'll give one big piece of fish this time and I'll get two before I have to give another one. That, that's not spiritually mature motivation. In fact, if we are a group, if we are a church uh, of people who give and who serve that way, like I, I'll give, but I'm really wanting to get. You understand if we're all that way, we're in like deficit spending. Does that make sense? If I really, if I'll give once, but I hope to get twice in response, get more, receive more than I give, we're bankrupt. We can't survive that way. Everyone is going to feel taken advantage of, used, nobody appreciates me, which belies my real motivation. I do things to be appreciated and to receive more than I give. An incredible thing happens when we do life with Jesus. He can really give us joy simply by giving, by serving, by doing for someone else and really understanding. Not only am I not going to get back more than I give, that's, it's immaterial. Real Christian maturity is all over this letter. Today, we're going to read one sentence. <laughs> we're going to read the first sentence of probably the body of the letter, depending upon how you want to outline it. And it's just Paul. Um, I'm calling this a little two-part series, uh, Prayer Partners. We'll take a break for Easter next week. and then, But for two weeks, we're going to be studying Paul just telling the Philippians what he prays when he prays for them. But spiritual maturity is all over it. Do you think, if we can look at what Paul thanks God for in someone else, that that'd probably be a good thing to want for us? So, what is he thankful for? And we see it's their spiritual maturity. And we can see Paul's spiritual maturity, because he's imprisoned. Like, he's locked up. And his thoughts are on his friends, are on others. So let's read this. It's one sentence in Greek. It's not one sentence in, in English. It's a long, meandering, what we would call a run-on sentence. This is Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Paul, um, from lockup, writing to his, to his friends in Philippi, and he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or will complete it or will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection, or you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. There's our passage. Like I said, one 
long, meandering, run-on Greek sentence. And Paul's main idea shows up pretty plainly in verses 3 and 4. This, this whole sentence is just Paul telling these folks what he, what he prays about or what he prays for. He starts by saying that he, that he thanks God and he thanks God always with joy about the Philippians. So does Paul feel good about these folks or bad about these folks? Very good. Here's the main idea. I want you to know I pray for you guys all the time and it's always good. I have so much joy in my heart when I think of you and I'm always thanking God for you. That's the main idea. It's interesting. If you were to go through Paul's prayers in the New Testament, a good study sometime, and look at what Paul prays for when he prays for things, you'll notice Paul doesn't pray for things very often. Paul doesn't pray for stuff. Paul prays for people. He doesn't thank God for things and for stuff. He thanks God for people, for what God does through people. People are the gift. That's the main idea. Paul says, I pray all the time for you guys. It's always, my prayers are always filled with joy. And I thank God. And I thank God for you. The rest of the sentence is why Paul is thankful. First, um, verse 5, Paul is thankful for their work, for the work the Philippians have put in. Remember, this is one sentence. He's still talking about why he thanks God with so much joy. And he says, I thank God every time I remember you with all this joy because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. We talked about the first day Paul met the Philippians last week. When Paul and his friends came ashore on Greece, first steps for, the, for Christianity on the continent of Europe, he goes to Philippi, he meets Lydia, he meets the jailer and their families. But notice what Paul says he's thankful for. Notice what has endeared these people to Paul's heart. And you can tell in this letter, Paul loves these folks. Paul doesn't thank God, mostly, because they accepted the gospel, received the gospel, believed the gospel, they did, and he is thankful for that. But what has endeared these folks to Paul is their participation in the gospel. They received the gospel on that first day, but they didn't stop with the gospel when they received the gospel. You know, believing in Jesus, we really want to, I really want to encourage people to believe the gospel. If you've never believed what I explained a few minutes ago, that someone has to die under the wrath of God for your sin, and it's either Jesus or you. Like If you've never believed that, trust in that. Place your faith in that. That's, how, that's, that's when God rescues people, redeems people. I want you to believe that. But believing the gospel is not the finish line of the gospel. It's the starter pistol of the gospel. 
Paul says, I thank God for you, Philippians. You're so near, you're so dear to my heart because of all the ways you have participated in the gospel. Now, Paul doesn't tell us what that participation was. He doesn't have to. He's writing to the people who participated. They know. This is a letter from one person to a group of people. So he doesn't spell it out. We'll learn through the letter. One thing they've done is they have, they have uh, supported Paul's ministry, like financially, but participation in the gospel can look like lots of different things. Um, it can be like evangelism. It can be telling someone else the gospel. Uh, it can be um, mentoring. It can be Bible study. It can be one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Anything that encourages someone to either believe the gospel or, or walk in a, in a closer relationship to Jesus and get, and get all these um, ramifications and results that we're going to talk about in Philippians in their lives, that's participating in the gospel, teaching here, um, creating an environment in a church where this is a place where people would want to be at participating in the gospel, financial support of, of missionaries, and, and things. We could do this all day. There are lots of ways to participate in the gospel. But I really want to point out what Paul is thankful for is Christians who participate in the gospel. It's not a spectator sport, this Christianity thing. So, I'm really thankful. Lots of joy for you guys. First, because of all your work. Then, Paul says, second reason, I thank God. I have so much joy every time I pray for you guys. And I pray for you all the time. Second reason I'm thankful is because of God's work. So your work, now God's work. Paul says, I am sure, this is verse 6, I am sure of this very thing. The one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, will uh, fulfill it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I like this slide that I ripped off the internet because it has this fancy wood grain behind it. I'm not crazy about the translation, that word right there. Um, Paul's not saying someday God will complete his work in you, though that's true. What he says is God's going to keep working in you until you stand before the Lord. This is a, this is a fantastic verse of Scripture. Uh, this, work, this verse can say so many things to so many different Christians. First, when Paul says, uh, I am very sure that this part at the beginning Paul says, there's no room for doubt in my brain. Um, I am completely 100% positive. Now, what's Paul positive about? Paul's positive. These people he's writing to are actually Christians. They're redeemed. They're saved. They're rescued. However you want to, whatever you want to call it. He knows. He's confident that they've placed their faith in Christ Jesus. What gives Paul that confidence? All of their work. They participated so much in the gospel. You wouldn't participate at the level you participated if you didn't believe 
what you're participating in. You know, good works have never saved anyone before God. I've talked about that once already this morning. It's so easy to have this idea that my life is like this big balancing scale. And if my good works outweigh my sin, if the good things I do outweigh the bad stuff I do, if the religious stuff I do and good deeds outweigh my sins, then God's going to be okay with me when I die. Not true. Not if you believe the Bible. The Bible is clear. Jesus was clear. The book of Romans that we just studied uh, last book is clear. There is no one righteous, not even one. We need rescued from God. So good works have never saved anyone. But good works are still very important. We were created to do good works. But, what, but Paul alludes to one, other, one thing that good works are good for, and that's confidence in our hearts. Paul says, when I think about you, I pray for you guys, I have so much joy, I have so much peace, I have so much thankfulness for you, Philippians. You know why? Because I am sure God went to work in your heart. And, I'm, and I know because he went to work in your heart, he's going to keep working on you. I know that, you're, that you really believe this stuff. That's something good works can do. It can give us confidence in our hearts. Oh yeah, man, I, I never, the old me never would have done that. The only reason I'm doing this thing is because I love the Lord. You can do that for other folks. But Paul words it this way. He's so thankful for their work, their, their participation. He'd be thankful for some precipitation too if he lived here, but that's different. He's thankful for their participation. But Paul words it this way. I'm so thankful that he who began a good work in you will complete it until, or will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's confident of their salvation. He's thankful for all their, their work, but he says, don't misunderstand the compliment I've been giving you, Philippians. I'm thankful for your participation, but the work is actually God's. I'm thankful that you participate in what God is doing, but God is the one who's doing the doing. Okay, the one who God got a hold of your heart and he started a good work in you and everything you do now for him is his work. Here's the way this works. Jesus promised when he was still alive the first time on earth, he said, I will build my church. I promise I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not be able to stop me. So Jesus is going to build his church. Jesus, crucified, raised, rises from the dead, goes and meets a guy named Saul from Tarsus, the guy who wrote this letter. Changes him from a Jesus hater to a Jesus lover. From a Christian destroyer to, the, to a missionary. Who gets the credit for all Paul's work? Jesus. Paul participates. It's Jesus' work. He goes to Philippi, that Paul, 
tells them the message he'd been given from Jesus. Lydia, jailer, their families, all these other people, they believe, they go to work. Who gets the credit? Jesus. We, we have the honor to participate, but it is God who does the work. All of it. All of it. God hadn't send, sent uh, Paul onto Europe if he would have sent him another direction. And if for centuries and centuries most Christians were Asian instead of European, do you have any idea what we'd be like? Do you know who most of our ancestors were? Most of our ancestors were Vikings without the water. Right? Just as violent, just as pagan, just as evil as any Viking you've ever seen in a, in a movie. The reason you are sitting in here and not worshiping at some pagan temple is because God went to work in the hearts of our ancestors and he gets the credit. Anything I do, anything you do for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we get to participate. God does the work. This verse reminds me of uh, after 9-11 and the, the wave of patriotism that followed, I was teaching school then and, and we did a, a living American flag. You ever see one of those? I thought maybe I couldn't describe it, so I put this picture in this morning. All right, so we got this note told us what color shirt to wear that day. This is not us, by the way. Um, and a little map, and had, there were helpers out to tell people to stand in the right line. And then we didn't have drones back then, so I think somebody was on top of the elevator and took a picture of us. And we looked like an American flag. And it was a really cool thing to participate in. But do you know, the only thing we could do is participate in a plan someone else had come up with. Somebody else made the map. Somebody else had the idea. Right? Somebody else directed helpers to help us know where to stand. And in fact, if we used that plan to try to stick out, like to get attention for ourselves, we wouldn't have been participating. We would have been doing something else that wouldn't have gone well, right? The only thing we can do besides participate is mess something up. The only thing we can do in the gospel, like this is us in the gospel, the only thing we can do is take the plan someone smarter than us wrote and participate in this. And he gets the credit. And if we do things, in, when we start doing things in our flesh in a way, well, I want to be appreciated. I want to be seen. I'm not doing that because nobody ever, and all that stuff, all we, all we can do is either participate or mess something up. It takes the pressure off because God does the work. All we can do is relent and participate. But it is helpful to remember that's, that's also the most we can do is participate. And the last thing, this verse reminds us, or the last thing for this morning anyway, is if you're a Christian, if you've come to believe in what Jesus did for you at the cross, God began a good work for you. Again, coming to faith in Jesus Christ is the starter pistol of your Christianity, not the finish line. He started changing you, working on you, and he will not be done until you stand before him perfected one day. 
Here's why that's important to remember. I don't know who you are, but some of you, some of us are the kind of Christian that are really hard on yourself. You beat yourself up from, about your past, the things you've messed up. This verse tells you this. God is not through with you. You're a work in progress. He just started doing something good in you. You don't have to look like uh, who you think, that 75-year-old saint that's been walking with the Lord since the guy out of the crib, right? By the way, that guy, that gal has her problems too. But we don't keep scoring. God's not done with you, and he's not done with me. Some of the rest of us, if we're honest, we have a tendency to be harder on other people for their failures, for their sins. And this verse reminds us, hey, God's not through with that person either. And really, probably what would be more helpful for me instead of reminding myself of how that Christian doesn't measure up to my level of righteousness, maybe God wants me to participate in what he is trying to do in that person's life. And maybe it's more helpful for me to participate in what God is doing in their life than stand back and kind of judge and grade and all that stuff. Because God is not done with them. And God is not done with me. And maybe it's been a while since you participated. God started a good work in you. And he's not done. Next, Paul says, verse 7, why he's so confident in these believers. He says, it's right for me to think so highly of you all because I have you in my heart. And here's why. You are partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the establishment of the gospel. Paul says, here specifically is one way I'm so confident about you, believers. You kept participating when things got really tough. Um, it didn't matter if I was out planning churches, right? You were with me then, and when I got locked up, you're with me now. You know, it would have taken a lot of courage to... Paul gets arrested. He's in a Roman prison for people to say, hey, you know what? I'm on his side. It takes some courage. Again, that kind of courage doesn't come probably unless someone believes this gospel. And then we're going to end here in verse 8, which really seems like just a personal note from Paul to his dear friends, and it is that, but it's so much more. I'm so glad that Philippians 1.8 is in the Bible. Paul just says this. He says, God is my witness how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. God, uh, this God is my witness, like Paul calls God to the witness stand. If, we were, if I could call Paul, excuse me, Paul says, if I could call God to the witness, witness stand and, and swear God in, raise your right hand, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you, you, 
And thanks for getting that. And, and I could ask God, God, do I long to see the Philippians again? God would say, yes, that is true. Here's why I'm so glad that this, this is in here. Do you, do you hear the ache in what Paul says right there? He's imprisoned. He's chained to a Roman guard. Now Paul's going to keep doing Paul things. Paul sold out to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, he led me here to this prison, so I'm going to do the gospel in this prison. But I would prefer to be in Philippi on the Greek coast. I'd prefer to be with my friends. Do you have anybody you really miss? Do you have anybody you really miss, maybe just because it's miles? Or maybe it's because they're already with the Lord? Paul says, like I, God would tell you how much I long to be with you. Like, is that okay? Yes. Like the gospel helps us get joy we can't lose because we have a hope that won't die. And we know someday there's not going to be any distance between all those who are in Christ Jesus forever and ever and ever. But in the meantime, like life hurts sometimes. And I, I'm so glad that Paul didn't say, and if you guys are missing me right now, then you need to put your big boy pants on and quit all that belly aching. He doesn't say that. Like Paul's letters are hard to understand sometimes, and we can get this picture that he's like a college professor or something like that. Man, Paul loved folks. And he ached for the people he was separated from with the affection of Christ Jesus. Does Jesus have affection for us if you love him and know him as Savior? Yes. Are you with him fully yet? No. And Jesus has some sort of, even though he's fully in with the will, he has this ache to set everything right, put a stop to all the evil, dry all the tears from every eye, right? Jesus is ready for that too, though he leaves the timing up to his father. So I'm so glad that there's just a little word in here that says, hey, you can get your joy from your hope. And it'll never go away. And you can glorify Christ no matter what circumstances you are in. But if the, like the broken nature of this planet gives you ache while that happens, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. So even from one sentence, and we've got to move on to baptisms. Even from one sentence at the very beginning of this book, we learn some important things about Christian maturity. First, true Christian maturity, it is happening when we begin naturally without wanting something else in return, when we take the focus off of ourselves and put that focus onto what is good for someone else. That's, that is part of spiritual maturity. Spiritual Christian maturity is, is growing as we desire to participate in what God is doing. And finally, true Christian maturity is not being threatened when you get sad. It's easy to feel like 
The rest of the world just wants to say, oh, grow up. Why are you still, why are you sad about that? I think Paul was sad. Right, write down Philippians 1.8 in the back of your Bible so you can show it to somebody someday. someday. Like, look, Paul was sad, so you pound sand. Right? Christian maturity is not being threatened when the, when the circumstances of this world make our hearts ache. Because our hearts can ache while we stand in joy and hope. Does that make sense? All right. Let's pray and we'll finish our time and, and celebrate some baptisms. Father God, um, I do pray as we study this book of Philippians, you would grow us, you would mature us, uh, that the things that Paul saw in the Philippians, you would see in us. And God, I thank you that when death is defeated, the aches that we have, the separation from those loved ones that we have who are in Christ Jesus, that that will be that separation will be gone forever because we can be with you and one another for all of eternity. Um, and in the meantime, help us get our joy, not from what we get, but from how we serve you and others in your name. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, I'm going to have our musicians come up and we are going to sing uh, a closing song while our baptism candidates go uh, put on their snorkel and swim fins and <laughs>